Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for us to listen to another classic episode. It means it's a Friday, so let's all enjoy ourselves and and dive back into the archives of Tech Stuff. You know, I've got more than 1,200 episodes at this point, so... Uh, Some of these are probably brand new to you guys. This episode originally aired on April 10th, 2013. It is called Tech Stuff Leaps into Hyperspace. Let's listen. (laughs) Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. All right, here we go. Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed, if it's a fast ship. Fast ship? You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. I've outrun Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Corellian ships now. She's fast enough for you, old man. What's the cargo? Usually I'm the one calling you old man. Yeah, that's true. I just wanted to turn that around a little bit. I also didn't go full Christopher Walken, despite the fact that I love that Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, So we are talking about the Kessel Run and hyperdrives in the Star Wars universe, and uh, and then kind of comparing it to what we would like to call real life. Right. We're doing this, by the way, because this is our 501st episode, and uh, yeah. we, uh, we we are big fans of the 501st Legion. That's Apparently, right. That's so. right. That's uh, th- This is props going out to our Star Wars buddies. So uh, you 501st members out there, this one's for you. Uh, so now, in the original context, we need to talk about what the Kessel Run is within the, the mythology of Star Wars. Right, and it's not really mentioned in um, in any of the three original films. Right, or even the fictional prequels that supposedly exist. Uh, no, we should also point out, uh, according to, to everything I've ever read, Lucas considered anything that was in the movies canon. Correct. Anything outside the movies was uh, just extra stuff that may or may not line up with what is canon. So there's no, um, you know, the stuff that we'll be talking about a lot of this is things that other writers have kind of expounded upon. In uh, in the novels or the comics, some of the video games. Yeah, some of the cartoons, etc. And so uh, the stuff that we're talking about, this is this is mostly people trying to explain away what Lucas created in a, in a manner that makes kind of sense. Because <laughs> a lot of the stuff that you watch in Star Wars, if you really think about it, you're like, Whoa, Wait a minute. That's not science. So the Kessel Run in particular uh, is a, a route in Star Wars. Uh, at least this is the way it's explained in the, the expanded universe. It's, it's, a, a sm- it's a smuggling run. Right, which is exactly what, you know, Han Solo is a smuggler. And so this is a particular route through space that smugglers would take. And, uh, and one of the big complaints or criticisms of this particular section of dialogue is that Han Solo talks about doing a Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, which seems to suggest that he thinks parsecs is a measure of time. Oh, and, right. And, and it's no, not. And it's, it's certainly not. You know, it, you know I, I think that my, my strongest... Um explanation of this is just that Han Solo was just saying words. He was just talking and trying to sound impressive. Yeah, my, ex- um, my explanation is Lucas thought that parsecs sounded futuristic and that it sounds like a measurement of time. That was mine, which puts the onus on the writer, not the character. Uh, but hey, you know, I'm a writer. That's kind of how I think. Uh, like, sometimes I make mistakes, too. I'm just saying that if you're going to excuse the character saying it, I think that that is not a poor Right. If you want to be an apologist, sure. So, uh, so what a what a parsec actually is? It is um, a unit of distance. It's technically based upon uh, the 
uh, the sun and earth and 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 an, a, a second of arc. Uh, it, it involves some pretty complex uh, uh, concepts that are not that complex, but they're difficult to explain in audio format. But ultimately, it translates to about 3.26 light years. Right. And and is specifically, by the way, tied to uh, to the distance of the sun from the earth and another object and another object yeah, that it's, makes it's up a, one second triangulation. Arc. Yeah. And yeah. So, so, you know, forgiving the fact that we're talking about a, a galaxy far, far away and that perhaps, as uh, Phil Plate of Bad Astronomer pointed out, that yeah. might not be the most valid measurement right. of why would, anything. Why would, another, why would people in another galaxy use a unit of measurement that's dependent upon the Earth's position relative to another object and the sun? That makes no sense at all. But anyway, so it's uh, it's equivalent to about 3.26 light years. And, of course, that just makes things even more confusing for people who don't know what a light year is. And they think light year is also a measurement of time. It's not. Uh, but at any rate... The description Han Solo makes is very confusing if you think about parsecs being a distance. Like, how can you take a route and say that your ship made it in less than 12 units of distance for that route and make that be uh, a a measurement of its speed? So here's how we're going to try and explain this. Uh, Well, Oh, and also I should mention, uh, in the novelization of A New Hope, Han Solo does not say parsecs. They retconned that real quick in the novel. Yeah, he said standard time units. Less than 12 standard time units. I I have no idea how long a standard time unit is, but uh, that doesn't really matter, I guess. Uh, But anyway, so Kessel Run, you've got this route. It's usually, if you are taking the quote-unquote safe approach, 18 parsecs long. Which is about 59 light years. Yeah, so the reason why it's that long is because the route takes you through an area of space that has uh, black holes in it. It's called the Maw. And the Maw, M-A-W, um, would destroy a ship if you got too close to it. It's, you know, it's a black hole. Black holes, they're bad times for ships. Yeah. Right. You know, and you know, you, you do, you, have you heard what the term is for something that gets pulled through a black hole? The, the term of what is happening to it? Spaghettification. It's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> yes, because it gets pulled into these long, thin strands as it's being, uh, uh infinitely thin strands, hypothetically. Yeah, yeah. being pulled toward this center of intense density, uh, or intensity as I like to call it. Anyway, so usually this route would be 18 parsecs long, but if one were to be a little daring or perhaps insane... (laughs) Completely crazy. One might be able to plot a route that goes closer to the black holes. You kind of skirt around it, and, you know, Han Solo being the guy that he is. He, He says, you know, time is money, or distance is money, or money is money, or something, I don't know. Anyway, he wanted to be able to take a more direct route, which would shave off about six or so parsecs from this 18 parsec long route. And that means that, you know, he's, he's essentially, instead of going like a curved line, he's making a straight line. Uh, not quite like that dramatic, but close to it. So, in other words, he's taking a route and making it more efficient, but it is much more dangerous. There's no direct relationship between the Millennium Falcon's speed and this route. 
immediately. Right. But one could argue, and one has. Uh, in fact, Kyle Hill of Wired wrote a great article, How the Star Wars Kessel Run Turns Han Solo into a Time Traveler. Fantastic article. It's really, we'll link it. It's great. Yeah, it, it's entertaining. And uh, and also, <laughs> it starts to build in some chronological problems in the Star Wars universe, but we'll get into those. But anyway, he, he points out that uh, that you could... Uh, end up thinking, oh, well, the Millennium Falcon has to be sh- a fast ship because it has to be able to escape that pull of the black holes. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's what tells you that it's fast. Is not only that he, not only is the pilot capable of making a more efficient route to go through the Kessel Run, but mm-hmm. is also in a ship fast enough to escape, to escape black holes. Right, right, yeah. Well, according to Wikipedia, um, which is... <laughs> I, One of I, the best wikis ever. I just said that on the air. It was wonderful. Um, uh, in, in the commentary for Star Wars Episode for a New Hope DVD, George Lucas said that the uh, Millennium Falcon's navigational computers were highly advanced and that that was why the Parsec thing works out the way that it does. Yeah, so, it's, yeah, so essentially then you just make Han Solo a... Guy who flips switches. A really good flip switcher. There's also a great uh, thing that was at the Smithsonian uh, or the Star Wars exhibit where uh, uh, Harrison Ford was actually talking about the first time they shot a scene in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and George Lucas gave him the direction of, you're flying the ship. And he says, okay, how do I do that? <laughs> because there are just all these dials and switches and they, they didn't, there was no rhyme or reason to it. And George Lucas was like, I don't know. You push so, those buttons, pull that lever. Yeah, exactly. Push the button, Frank. <laughs> so uh, anyway, you might wonder, well, why, what's the big deal of the Kessel Run anyway? Why is, what was the significance? Like it, it's a smuggling route, but it's a smuggling route for what? And uh, within the lore, mm-hmm. uh, again, this is again, not from a, the films. expanded universe, so not canon. Uh, Kessel was a planet that uh, had uh, these mines on it for something called glitter stem spice, which was a substance created by spice spiders. And it's a photoactive substance, so it activates when light hits it, so it had to be mined in complete darkness. It could not be exposed to light in any way, or else it would lose its uh, potency. And the spice was essentially a drug. Uh, oh, it, as cheery as that is, I do want to point out that I'm pretty sure the word Kessel comes from um, d- during World War II. You know, the Germans got themselves really good and surrounded by a group of Russians, and uh, and some of their compatriots were trying to get supplies and, and aid to uh, their uh, their surrounded their colleagues. Colleagues, yeah, yeah sure. And um, uh, this failed completely. But but the word Kessel means uh, like pocket in German. Yeah, and so or, I think or, that's where or it comes kettle from. or or kettle. Yeah. Das ist richtig. So the glitter stem spice stuff, what it was supposed to do within the realm of Star Wars is boost your mental capacity and even give you perhaps telepathic powers for a short amount of time. It was also incredibly addictive. This is a, this makes Han Solo an even darker character in a way. Cause he's a he's, drug smuggler. Yeah, he runs drugs. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of grim. Uh, but uh, in the during the Galactic Republic, which is the period that precedes uh, a New Hope. That's back when there was a the old Republic was around. It was being used medically, uh, but then the Republic fails, and then the black market takes over. Smugglers start selling this, I guess, more like recreational drugs as opposed to medical things, and the Empire outlaws it, and so uh, that's why it's important to be able to avoid imperial entanglements, <laughs> as uh, Obi Wan says in A New Hope. So. That's why it's important uh, that uh, there's the explanation of 
shaving off some of the uh, distance that it would normally take you to, to travel in order to get there, and also the fact that the Falcon would have to be a little faster than most ships. Now, all of that is kind of cool. I, I can I can kind of handle most of that, even though I think that the Parsec thing is really an apologist. It's a retcon uh, or, or a retroactive continuity where you, after you've made a mistake, you go back and try to justify the fact that the mistake is there. Right, right. Uh, uh, this is, by the way, in no way... Uh, Limited to Star Wars. No. Right now. It's extraordinarily common. Um, yes, everywhere. Yeah, it's... Yeah. So the other thing that Han Solo says is it can go at... 0.5 beyond light speed. So I interpret that to mean half again faster than the speed of light. I, I interpret it as as, a, as 0.5% of light speed above light speed, but 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 yours sounds much more impressive. <laughs> well, that would be much mine would be much more impressive. Either way, you're violating the laws of physics as we understand them, uh, because as we as we understand. The speed of light through a vacuum is the universal speed limit. Nothing can go faster than light through it's a vacuum. physically impossible. Now, we should also mention light itself does not necessarily travel at the same speed through all media. Oh, right, right. You know, through a vacuum, it travels at an incredible clip. It's about 299,792,458 meters per second or around 186,282 miles per second. Uh, that's through the vacuum of space. And Solo's ship, if you assume it could go half again faster than the speed of light, would have its top speed at somewhere around 449,688,687 meters per second or 279,424 miles per second. That's really fast. And, of course, it is faster than anything we can we, we know of besides some theoretical particles that we'll talk about in a little bit. Right. Uh, it's faster than anything we know of can go. That makes it really problematic because if we just talk about parsecs and shaving off distance, you know, okay, I can see that. It does, we still have the problem of a parsec is a really long distance. Oh, right, yeah. So how, you know, if Han Solo made the Kessel Run... How long would it take him to do it, assuming that he's traveling at around the speed of light? And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you go, if you nudge right up to the speed of light, they would take about thirty-nine years to yeah. travel twelve parsecs. That that would be that would be due to an independent observer, though. Correct. Because uh, special relativity. But we'll we'll talk about that. You yeah. Know, I don't yeah, want to yeah. get into that right now. But hmm. special relativity will play a part in our second part of our conversation because uh, also we should go ahead and say it. According to Star Wars, and again, this is a retcon type thing, all ships have a stasis field stabilizer thing that keeps time. It's a universal constant of time amongst the Empire, which is really convenient because otherwise Han Solo would be older than Yoda. Right. Um, after he had taken, uh, what, I don't know, like... like Two or three trips, yeah, oh, it, it, four like, or five. Yeah. 23. Oh, 23 trips on the Kessel Run. But it does sound like he's done it multiple times, which means that if he's done the Kessel Run multiple times, that special relativity problem, which again we'll talk about in a minute. Just two would put him older than Palpatine. Right. So so here's here's the thing. Uh, The stasis is supposed to keep everything constant. Uh, Time is a, a tricky thing because it doesn't matter. It's not just if you're traveling near or at or above the speed of light where you have to take it into account. Every single planet that's in the entire galaxy of Star Wars has time pass at a different rate uh, according to any... Uh, according to physics. Yeah, and again, it's relative. So if Lauren's on one planet and I'm on another planet, each of us are going to feel as if time is passing at the same speed. 
individually. Mm -hmm. Like a second will feel like a second to me. A second will feel like a second to Lauren. However, depending upon the the planet's mass and the speed at which it travels through space, the actual passage of time is going to be different relative to each other. So if we match our, our watches up, we'll see that they're not keeping exact synchronized time. And again... More on that hmm. in just a bit. I have to I have to preface it because it's it makes my head swim. Uh, all right, so the other element in this Star Wars universe is this idea of hyperspace and a uh, hyperdrive. And so this is when, and uh, if you've watched the Star Wars movies, you know they engage the hyperdrive, and then suddenly all the stars start streaking toward them in this beautiful display. And uh, from from the outside, it looks like the ship just suddenly gets an enormous speed boost. Right. And yet no one is uh, is is slammed back against the back of the the Millennium Falcon like and, and ejected into space because of the massive acceleration. That would be a pretty pretty lame trip. It'd be really uh, it'd be funny to see like the the activation of the first hyperdrive, and then you just see a bunch of aliens just floating free in space. Like, well, that was a bad idea. Um, this kind of this kind of happens in Farscape. Uh, that's for for you kids out there. We need to make Jonathan watch that. Anyway, yeah, I've never watched it. Uh, so so it's it's not very well defined hyperspace in in the Star Wars universe, even in the expanded universe. Oh, right, right. It, it's it, you know hyperspace is kind of placed in contrast to real space. Yeah. Uh, you know, real space being of course what we're kind of moving around in, and the ships under under normal speed constraints are moving around in, and then uh, and then yeah, apparently these these hypermatter reactor drives with hypermatter implosion cores. I mean. It sounds a little bit like a like a wormhole or a tesseract, something like yeah, that. Yeah, like again, it's not very well uh, explained. So some of there's like uh, it could be a parallel universe where you open up a gate and you travel into a new universe, and then you open up a second gate and you reemerge into quote unquote our universe, the star, or at least the Star Wars universe, real space, real space. Uh, but you are you know, in a different point of real space than you were when you started. Um, or it could be an extra dimension in space, which is kind of like warp drive, where you're warping space around you. Uh, it could be an alternate mode of physical existence, which I said is kind of like an astral plane for those of you who play fantasy games where you can travel to that. Um, or it could just be traveling faster than the speed of light. And all of that is... Uh, difficult to to get your head around. Again, none of that was was definitively set down in the movies as this is how hyperdrive works or hyperspace. So we have a lot of different things to choose from, and uh, and it seems to me that a lot of the people who write in the Star Wars universe or who have tried to explain the Star Wars universe have kind of fudged around with this a lot. No one has really. Uh, come out with what is the definitive answer as to what this is. All right, sure. And and this I the, I, I use this example about about once a week with Jonathan, but it always reminds me of this one terrific interview that Rick Berman did about uh, Star Trek, the mm-hmm. um, specifically the. Uh, uh, Eisenberg uncertainty compensators and the transporters. And someone was like, "Well, how do those work?" And he was like, "Very well, thank you." Next question. Yeah. Whereas you know the holodeck works very poorly, or at least it breaks down once a year. But again, uh, within the lore of Star Wars, right. uh, hyperspace itself is first discovered by a race called the Rakata, and uh, they created the Rakata, like the cheese. Uh, no, it's R A K A T A. Okay, just checking. You gotta remember that Star Wars often the pronunciations are exactly the same as very silly stuff here on Earth. Funny about that, um, but anyway, they they created force powered drives. So they were tapping into the power of the force to travel through space at incredible speeds. And that there I have no problem because sure. the force is magic. 
And and magic means you do not have to explain how something works technologically. Mm-hmm. The physics is right out the window. Right. So, yeah. yeah. You you know it's a fairy tale. You don't question the physics of a fairy tale. You know. I mean, if you sit there and and say, well, wouldn't a prince climbing Rapunzel's hair scalp her and leave her screaming in pain? That doesn't make the fairy tale very much fun. No. Uh, would have been a very short movie. Uh, Tangled would have been very grim. And not in a fairy tale kind of. Okay. Anyway, I'm getting off track. But they, they used the force, and I'm, I thought, oh well, if it's something that's force based, then that's so no whatever. Problem. Sure, great. Except that then within again the expanded lore, the Corellians, uh, Corellia is one of the planets in the Star Wars universe, uh, and the Duros uh, both found these starship drives and using reverse engineering determined how they worked and created technological versions of these force-driven drives. So they used technology to replicate what the force did. Had been doing, sure. And uh, now now we have a technological explanation for how hyperspace works, except there's no actual explanation there. It's just that it is technological. Uh, now this is what drives me crazy. Because <laughs> now I'm like, okay, wait, no. so if there is a technical way to make it happen, how does it work? Um, and And... Really, we have more about the process than anything else. So uh, in the movies, when they were going to make a jump to hyperspace, they would uh, activate the ship's navigational computer, which would calculate whatever the route needed to be. And this was important because, uh, as Han Solo explains to Luke, who is uh, an impatient little brat in A New Hope, uh, he explains, like, you can't hurry this stuff because if you do, you pass too close to a star or a planet. It pulls you out of hyperspace and you could die. Yeah, yeah. Now, now this, to me, creates another problem because if hyperspace is, in fact, a parallel universe, why do things that exist in our meat space affect you when you're in the parallel universe? Unless, of course, they also have a presence in that parallel universe. I, I, I do. I don't know. It, it, it sounds much more like a like a like a wormhole. Like like you're somehow jumping from from point to point along kind of a like like a conveyor belt sort of thing, which is another concept that we can talk about in a minute. But. So so you're you're thinking more along the lines of uh, this parallel universe has has certain anchor points to real space that uh, it does pass through, even if it's not a one-to-one ratio? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Uh, or, or, yeah, or, or kind of like, I don't know, like like there's just certain sections of space that you can go much faster through, and and unfortunately, you know, sometimes a sun gets in the way. So you're talking about like the Autobahn of outer yeah, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's I, I've, another thing that I was reading on Wikipedia wow. um, was, was, saying, was saying that there are maybe about eight of these, uh, according to the Star Wars universe, huh. kicking around. And yeah. th- that are super safe routes, and then there's some that are pretty shady and wind up getting you stuck in an asteroid. Wow. Okay. Well, at any rate, it does make me sit there and think this parallel universe explanation is is harder to get my mind wrapped around if things in real space can affect your traveling through the parallel universe. Uh, unless, of course... Uh, it's just talking about how where, where your output is going to be, like where your stopping point is going to mm-hmm. be. That obviously would be important. If if it um, maybe it has to calculate. All right, well during the process, like right now, if we were to leave, if we were to instantaneously jump to this endpoint right now, we'd be fine. But by the time we actually get there, there's going to be a planet in the way because of the rotation of the planets. Then I'm like, okay, all right, I got it now. That makes sense. Uh, it was to me, it was the stuff that was on the pathway that made no sense. But anyway, uh, the hyperdrive. 
uh, would create ripples in the time-space matrix using a fusion reaction and gamma radiation. And then the ripples would propel the ship into hyperspace, and none of that makes any sense. <laughs> But, but then but again, it sounds really impressive if you're just not thinking at all. If if you're just if Han Solo were reading that, I would be like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, come on, he was kind of dreamy, you know. <laughs> it's true. We just, we just bought anything he said. Uh, yeah, and and this also reminds me of warp drive as well, where you're you, you're warping the time space. In this case, it's the time space matrix, and in Star Trek, it'd be the space time continuum. But either way, it's the idea of warping the dimensions themselves in order to propel you across vast distances at incredible speeds. And uh, and so that's kind of the, the breakdown of how it worked within the lore of Star Wars. All right, guys, I'm going to interrupt this classic episode for just a moment so that we can take a quick break to thank our sponsors. All right, so let's get back to hyperspace. So we mentioned in the first half, nothing can go faster than the speed of light. It's universal speed limit. Correct, yeah. yeah. It's, it's smart people such as Einstein have talked a lot about that. Right, and that, that speed and time themselves actually have a relationship. And so this gets us into special relativity. Uh, there are a lot of different aspects of special relativity, but the one that interests me the most in this discussion is the fact that as objects move faster time dilates on that object relative to a stationary observer. So again, in other words, uh, like if I if I'm standing perfectly still in space, so I'm not I'm not on okay. a planet, I'm not mm-hmm. moving at all. Hopefully in a spacesuit. Yeah, sure. Uh, sh- sure. Why not? I'll give it to you at this time. All right, and Lauren, you are in a uh, a, a zippy little ship that's going at near the speed of light. Uh, again, to you, time seems to be passing at the normal rate. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to have a, a watch, if I had a watch, it would be ticking along at one second per tick, according to my eyeballs. Right, and and it would feel exactly like it was as long as a second should be. My watch would also, to me, be it would appear to be moving at exactly the the correct speed. Now, if I were to uh, to be able to see what's happening in your little world, it would look to me like uh, time had slowed way down for you mm-hmm. and that more time was passing for me than it was for you. So you could do like a quick joyride around the mm-hmm. solar system, for sure, example. Sure. And let's say we're just going to make an argument that, that you take an hour-long trip around the solar system. An hour according to me. To, to, your, to your watch. So your watch... You start the timer as soon as you engage the drive, and an hour has gone by, and you you come back and pick you up. Yeah, you come back to see me, and uh, and we're we're gonna say that you're going at a speed so that uh, we won't make it ridiculous. Uh, well, you're going at a speed where a year of time has gone by for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludicrous but, speed. Right. Sorry. So so an hour of time's gone by for Lauren. A year has gone by for me, um, and and that's the special relativity. It's that idea that. Again, rel- relative to me, less time has passed for Lauren. Relative to Lauren, more time has passed for me. Uh, right, and, that, and that's because that's because speed and mass both have uh, speed and gravity both have an effect on time. Yeah, as though time is a substance itself. So uh, now the the gravity mass thing that's really more general relativity, uh, but that's that's also playing a part in all of our calculations when it comes to spacefaring. Uh, by the way, if you were to do something like carry an atomic clock. 
and have it synchronized with an, another atomic clock. So two atomic clocks are side by side on a table here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And you take one of those and you get on a uh, an space airplane. elevator. Well, not even a, not, not even a space elevator. You just get on an airplane. Uh-huh. And as an airplane's going at, at top speed and it's flying as far as it possibly can, and then it lands. By the time it lands, those two clocks that were in perfect sync before will no longer be in perfect sync. And the reason is is that you were traveling a little faster. There's also some uh, the element of, uh, of general relativity, which means that... When you're further away from the center of the Earth, and, and therefore... The closer you are to a large mass object, the slower time passes for you relative to something that's further out from that massive object. Again, it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Because from your individual experience, it seems like time is passing at the same rate. Unless you're, you know, waiting on an important phone call. Right, in which case, yeah, yeah. like, you know, that that dreamy that dreamy uh, person you met at that party is supposed to call and you're just staring at the phone. Time Every second is an eternity, no matter whether you're traveling at the speed of light or not. But anyway, yeah, we can observe this in, a, in satellites that we've launched into orbit. Uh, they have to They have to mathematically... Correct. Correct, yeah. for that sort of thing. Yeah, so in fact, both special and general relativity play a part in this. So the global positioning system, GPS, the GPS device you have picks up signals that are beamed down from satellites. And the satellites, part of the, the signal is a time stamp. And the way your GPS figures out where you are is by saying, all right, well, it took X amount of time for, for this one signal to come from this satellite to hit me. It took X amount, Y amount of time from the signal from this other satellite to hit me. Mm-hmm. And it took Z amount of time for the, the signal from this third satellite to hit me. Based upon all of that and the position of those satellites, I know that I must be on this point on the Earth. Well, obviously, the time stamp is really important for the information to work. Right, right. It needs right? to be pretty precise. Yeah, otherwise, it's going to give you the wrong location on the Earth. The thing about the satellites is that they are traveling faster than a point relative on the surface of the Earth, so that means that time is passing, again, at a different rate relative to us here on Earth, on the on the surface. Uh, but they are also further out from the mass of the Earth, which means they're going faster, so that means time's passing more slowly relative to us, but they are further out, so time is, pa- is passing faster than relative to us. This gets really complicated. <laughs> But if you were talking about just special relativity, because the satellites are moving so fast, they, they have about a lag of about seven microseconds per day on the satellite's clock. So remember, they're, they're traveling faster than the relative point on the surface of the Earth, so that means that uh, less time is passing on the satellite, seven microseconds per day as a, as a result. But because they're further out from the mass of the Earth than a clock would be here, you know, close to the surface, their clocks are actually running faster by about 45 microseconds per day because of general relativity. So if you take those two numbers, the the lag of second seven microseconds and the uh, the surplus of 45 microseconds, and then you you know combine the two to cancel them out, you are still left with a 38 microsecond surplus per day on the satellite's clock wow. compared to one on Earth. Mm-hmm. So that means that you actually have to correct for that. All right, that's one satellite that's orbiting Earth. Now imagine that on all the spaceships traveling everywhere all the time. And that's why you get to the point where keeping track of time is impossible. Galactic level is, yeah. So in the case of Han Solo, again, going back to that that, uh, Wired article that Kyle Hill wrote, uh, he started pointing out that 
assuming that you're going at near the speed of light, you know, mm-hmm. he, he went ahead and said, okay, you can't go faster than the speed of light. Yeah, let, let's that's right out. And going at the speed of light is also impossible because you would at that point have a infinite density, density and, yeah. and mass. So, yeah, so that would be bad. Yeah, um, your, mass, your mass increases as you get uh, closer to the speed of light. But if we say 99.999 ad infinitum. Yeah. Uh, so it's going about as fast as it as as fa- about as close to the speed of light as you possibly can imagine. This, this is probably not mathematically. Ever, yeah, yeah. It's probably not ever going to be possible physically, but if you can imagine it, um, that then uh, the Kessel Run would take about half a day. About sixteen hours. Yeah. So sixteen hours on the on the Millennium Falcon, but then galactic time. Assuming that galactic time is passing at a standstill Normal rate, rate. You know, mm-hmm. forty years. So 40 years would pass in galactic time while on board the Falcon, 16 hours passes. So he, they started to figure out, like, how much time has passed in the, gal- in the galaxy since Han Solo made his Kessel Run. And then he started saying, well, yeah, it's probably made a Kessel Run more than once. So if you start num- adding up the number of Kessel Runs, how much time has passed? And that's when he said, like, if, you know, you do two Kessel Runs, and then he had to have been born before characters who, like, K- Kenobi. And, and, and Qui-Gon, and, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you've got Han Solo predating all the characters who were in the prequels. Uh, and it's because of this special relativity problem. So, uh, it, by the way, if he were, in fact, able to travel faster than the speed of light, it would mean that he would arrive at his destination before he left. Math is fun. Yeah. So uh, so he would actually, he would be on Kessel before he had decided to make the Kessel run due to the way this works. Now, granted, nothing can go faster than the speed of light, but, you know, assuming, yeah. assuming also, that and, it would and work they, that they way. And they have those, those drives, those... Uh, the hyper drives? Ret, ret, retcon drives. Oh, right, to, right, uh, right. The retcon drives, yes, those work really well. Um, where you just say, hey... It's impossible, let's change it. Let's look at the Wookiee. Yeah, and, and so the stasis field was sort of the answer to that, saying right. that the time does not pass differently aboard the ship as it does in the outside galaxy, which is fine, except for the fact that, again, remember, every single planet has its own uh, passage of time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, a second feels like a second no matter where you are, but it lasts shorter or longer depending upon the planet's mass and its speed that it moves through space. Right. Uh, Also, technically, I think that it would be a little bit confusing to try to, you know, call days out on a whole system of planets that have different suns and different orbits and... Yeah, and and Tatooine, you've got two suns, and one of them might always be up. You never know. I mean, it's, yeah, it gets complex. And, uh... Yeah, and then you have all these other people who are traveling around at near or faster than the speed of light, so time gets messed up for them, too. So time would be meaningless in this universe, which, you know, one could argue it's kind of meaningless now. But I I, I don't get that cynical except on uh, Fridays, and it's a Thursday, so I'm all right. Then again, there are also some criticisms to things like the visual representation of what it looks like to go into hyperspace, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a study that was done by, oh, who did that study? I don't have it in front of uh, me. Some students, uh, Riley Connors, Kitty Dexter, Joshua Argyle, and Cameron Scular. And they said that if you were to travel at the speed of light, not only would you not see those stars become streaks, the streaks. Mm-hmm. they would become a cone of light. So the center would be the brightest, and the further out from the cone, the darker it would get. And uh, and part of that's because of the Doppler effect, essentially. Right, right. That's a, that's, that's blue shift and red shift. And um, yes, when yes. you're when you're when you're moving at near the speed of light or at the speed of light towards something. Um, uh, 
everything is going to shift towards blue. Yeah, the 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 waves compress because you're you're traveling toward the uh, the emanation of those waves, so they're being compressed further and further. In fact, they would be compressed so much as to move outside the visible spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, and then you would start getting hit by lots of X-rays, which would tell you that your spaceship needs to have some real protection built into it, or else people are not going to feel so great when they get to where they're going. Right. Uh, and that's an interesting point too. Yeah, and I didn't even think about that until I read this little study, and I thought, well, that's pretty clever. Yeah, I guess so. The Doppler effect would would uh, be something you'd have to take into account. So it wouldn't look like those stars flying by the way they do in the the movies. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit, uh, conclude with a, a discussion about some actual real propulsion systems besides chemical rockets. Now we don't have a hyperdrive which is nope. unfortunate. Uh, we would love to have one. Obviously, it'd be really handy. Yeah, you guys get on that. Yeah, but right now we don't have one. Uh, so some of the the propulsion systems that have been proposed for uh, for, for space travel beyond... Uh, we're getting outside the whole thing about launching off the Earth. I mean, that, that part, you still pretty much need chemical rockets, solid fuel rockets, mm-hmm. uh, to, to provide the propulsion you need to get off the, the planet. Right, because the, the amount of power involved, uh, what we can do with chemical right now is a lot uh, more... Um, well, it gives a lot more oomph. A lot more oomph. That's the, that's the astronomical term. And there's oomph aplenty in a chemical rocket. Guys, we just popped out of hyperspace for just a moment so we can take another quick break, but we'll be right back. These other drives would be very useful once you do get up into space where you don't have to have the considerations of escaping a planet's gravity or battling its atmosphere in order to, mm-hmm. to maneuver. Oh, right, because the thing about, about these chemical drives is that they are extremely wasteful in a grand universal kind of scheme. Yeah, you have to carry a lot of fuel. They pack a lot of power, but you have to carry an awful lot of it. It's not terribly efficient. Uh, so... They wouldn't last very long mm-hmm. in, in the grand scheme of things. If you're talking about trying to travel vast different distances, not differences, but distances, then uh, the chemical uh, uh, rockets end up being really heavy, and uh, that limits how much you can carry, which in turn limits how far you can go. Yeah, so, without just coasting, like, for example, the, the Voyager satellites. Right, right, which, uh, hey, just left the solar system. Actually, they didn't. Uh, oh, that, did they come a- back? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they they realized left something on Pluto. Um, no, they uh, uh that, that was a that was a little bit of a mis misquote in the press. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I'm glad so. you I'm glad you caught up on that because I, obviously I did not. Well, it's okay. I failed to tweet about it, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm. That's my bad. Hey, no, it's okay. Uh, you caught it on the podcast, so now our listeners can say that Vogelbaum, she keeps Strickland on task. Uh, so one of the ones we want to talk about were ion engines. Right. Uh, now, ion engines, they're using ions, so that's charged particles. Um, uh, you know, think of a, an atom that's either ha- either has a, an excess of electrons or a, uh, a deficit in electrons. So either way, it's either got a negative or a positive charge. Plasma is an ionic gas. So it's a gas that has these free ions moving through it. It means that you can actually pass electric current through the gas itself. Right. That's what a plasma is. The plasma, of course, is the most plentiful of the uh, the states of matter mm-hmm. in the universe, as far as we are aware. And, um, and so the ion engines use electric fields rather than chemical reactions to create propulsion. And they're not as powerful as chemical engines. So they don't give you that oomph that chemical engines do, but mm-hmm. they are way more efficient, yeah, and so and they can last 
ages. Mm-hmm. And they use that. They use solar energy to provide that. Yeah, they, they get the solar energy to provide electricity to help uh, create these reactions that will create the ions that, that propel it. So uh, they have these big solar panels that will unfold from the spacecraft. Uh, we've already launched some spacecraft using ion engines. The Dawn spacecraft, which launched on September 27, 2007, has ion engines and uses these solar panels to get the electricity. Um, its destination, it had two, actually, uh, but the second destination, the ultimate destination, is a dwarf planet, Ceres, and it's scheduled to arrive there in February 2015. Uh, so uh, visiting the NASA pages about this spacecraft, I saw some interesting figures. One was that it is a 6.3 billion kilometer journey. And just so that you get an idea of how far that is compared to a light year, a light year is 9.4 trillion kilometers. So 6.3 billion kilometers, still nowhere near a light year. So assuming that it arrives on the 1st of February in 2015, which I just took that as an arbitrary date. We just made that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, it will have flown for seven years, five months, and two days to go those 6.3 billion kilometers. So I did some, I did some silly little math, which was that six million, uh, 6.3 billion kilometers ends up being 6.3 trillion meters. And then you have to figure out how many seconds are in seven years, five months, and two days. So I did. 236,872,800 seconds. So if you do the math, then that means that the average speed, and this is you know just average because it does change, is 26,597 meters per second, based on the information that I was able to find. So, uh, uh, so not shabby, I not, mean. Not shabby, but still nowhere near the speeds yeah. of the Falcon. Uh, <laughs> but it, it also used about, uh, uses, the Dawn's engine used uh, 450 kilograms of xenon fuel. Mm-hmm. Xenon being a neutrally charged. Yeah, and it used that uh, the solar array to to ionize everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, and the solar array at one astronomical unit uh, provided about uh, 10.3 kilowatts of power. Uh, an astronomical unit, by the way, is 149,597,871 kilometers. And you might say, well, what the heck kind of measurement is that? Well, that's the mean distance between the Earth and the sun. Because the distance actually changes throughout the Earth's rotation around the sun. It's not always exactly that far away. That's the mean. So that's what we decided to define as an astronomical unit. And I'm sure any aliens will be happy to take us up on a discussion of why that's very uh, human-centric. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, an astronomical unit is exactly the distance between your star and your planet. Really enlightened guys. Well, I mean, I think that they'll really take on to it, like parsecs. Yeah, they'll be right up there. They're like, <laughs> I I was having this discussion with my buddy eight parsecs ago. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Oh, no. Like, hey, I, I know how this goes because I watched your Star Wars documentary. So at the maximum thrust, Dawn's ion engine expends about 0.25 kilograms of xenon per day. And that produces a thrust of 92 millinewtons which uh, NASA explains is about the amount of force you feel when you put a piece of paper on your open hand. That's the amount of force. Which sounds so incredibly unimpressive when you, right. <laughs> when you put but, it that way. But in the, in the, in the environment of space, it right, is sure. plenty enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it says that uh, the, the thrust changes the spacecraft's velocity about oh, 10 to the negative 5 meters per second every second. And after about a thousand days, it would achieve a velocity of a thousand meters per second. So, because there's no drag in space. So. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> so anyway, yeah, about a thousand meters a second after a thousand days. Uh, so that 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 speed I gave you, the twenty six thousand five hundred ninety seven meters per second. Uh, obviously, again, that's a that's just averaging it out over the full distance. Sure. In fact, it's just constantly accelerating, uh, not always at that particular speed, but it will be or at that particular rate. I shouldn't say it's accelerating at that speed. That's totally that's not misleading. Mm-hmm. But at that rate, so. Yeah, that, that's that's one of the ones that we're looking at now. There's also other forms of uh, propulsion that have been proposed, like solar sails. Again, not something that's going to get you from Earth's solar system to a distant solar system anytime quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a very efficient means of, of travel by harnessing uh, photons. It, the photons hit the solar sail, and that's what provides the propulsion to move the craft forward, which sounds kind of incredible. You think about that, you know, how much kinetic energy can a photon have uh, and, and and it may surprise some of you to know that photons have kinetic energy but uh, but it's true I mean the earth actually like when the sun is hitting you you weigh a little more because the the light is actually hitting they're pushing against you. on yeah. you yeah yeah that's why I never go outside I don't like getting pushed around by the sun or by nobody and so uh, then I wanted to mention there's a theoretical engine. There's a, there's a few theoretical engines. Yeah. The one that I came across was a an electromagnetic gravity drive by uh, Joachim Hauser. That's just a guess because I don't know how to pronounce that name. I do not either. That sounds great to me. Well, he's a physicist and a professor of computer science at the University of Applied Sciences in Salzgitter. And, uh, and then he worked with uh, Walter Druscher who was an Austrian patent officer, and they came up with an idea uh, that would use an electromagnet, essentially a rotating ring above a superconducting coil, and then they would pump a lot of electricity through the coil, uh, which would then create a magnetic field because we know about the, re- the relationship between coils electricity and then mm-hmm. magnet, magnets magnets sure. you know you, you can you can either if you run electricity through a coil you'll create a magnetic field if you run a coil through a magnetic field that's alternating or, or that's that's uh, that's changing over time a dynamic uh, magnetic field you will induce current to flow through the coil that's this relationship between electricity and magnets thus the electromagnetism that magnetic field will quote reduce the gravitational pull on the ring to the point where it floats free end quote uh, and that theoretically you could go from Earth to Mars in about three hours using this in a way that makes no sense to me. I mean, it's <laughs> it's talking about a the math requires that you actually have extra dimensions to make it all make sense. And uh, you know, in the in the standard model, we essentially think of four dimensions: three in space and one in time. Uh, but this would require two more dimensions. It would also end up in requiring extra fundamental forces besides the strong and weak nuclear force, mm-hmm. electromagnetic and gravity, that we are familiar with. There would be two more. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's possible that these things exist, but it's, so far it exists as far as math goes and not observation. Right, right. Even even lower down or uh, even lower down, down on the scale, there's a few other things that people have kind of theorized about. One, one is called... Um, this is probably not how you say it. Alcubierre's warp drive is a oh, thing that okay. NASA has talked about a little bit, which which kind of kind of is similar to the Doppler effect. It says that if you can get space time to expand behind you and contract in front of you, you can just kind of warp straight through it. So, in other words, think of it this way: you've got a like imagine you have a map in front of you, mm-hmm. all right, a, a paper map, 
and you have put a figurine on the leftmost edge of the paper map, and your job is to get the figurine to the rightmost edge in the least number of die rolls, and there, there are spaces there mm-hmm. that that uh, represent how far you can go. So uh, normally there would be a hundred spaces between you and the uh, and the, the right side, and you're only able to roll the die X number of times. Right, but and if you can just pick up the, the edge of the map. Right, if you were able to fold the edge of the map so that it's right next to you, and you roll a one, and you move one space, and then you unfold the map, you have just moved one space, but you've traveled all that distance. Right. That's the magic of warp drive, people. We're talking yes. about folding all of the galaxy around us to accommodate our travel needs. Right. And people say, I'm a demanding traveler. But uh, so, so that's that's one, you know, it sounds super easy on paper. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> I just explained that. that <laughs> um, and, and the the other being uh, being creating wormholes, um, you know, you know, a wormhole being kind of a pokey thing. Yeah, through it's, it's two kind of a shortcut on a it, paper map. Yeah, uh-huh. if you if you if you took if, if instead of a little figurine, you had a pointy figurine or a pencil or something and you and you stuck that pencil straight through the two points in the map that you wanted to travel between right. and then sort of hit hopped through the holes. Yeah, so there's still some travel time, but it's much more reduced. It's This is where we get wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Right, right. But uh, but hypothetically, uh, all we would have to do is um, build two super-dense rings, uh, giant super-dense rings, charge them somehow, and spin them near the speed of light. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, no problem. So the interesting thing here, by the way, is that when we're talking about warping space, when we're talking about actually moving or uh, manipulating the space-time continuum, or however you want to say it, the fabric of space Mm -hmm. itself, we actually get around the special relativity problem. Right. Because your actual speed doesn't need to be light speed. You are just changing the distance. Yeah. You're not changing you're, you're not going at this incredible speed. So time's still going to travel or time's time is still going to pass differently relative to someone on a different ship or a different planet, but not at the amazing differences right, right. You, that you would, wouldn't need an infinite amount of energy to move yourself and you wouldn't have an right. infinite amount of mass. So. Yeah, and you also wouldn't find out when you call back home that everyone you know is 40 years older. Right. Uh, they might be, you know, a few microseconds older than you, but it would be you know so small as to not as to be negligible, except for you know things like communication and stuff where you have to have exact timing. Obviously, you'd have to have computers to correct those calculations. But when it comes to you know missing someone's birthday, you don't have to worry so much. Uh, daylight saving time would probably be interesting. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean there are people who are working on these theoretical drives, and it may turn out that the theories are just they're they're not truly like theories in the sense of a uh, of this is really established stuff. And right, we're just they're, they're not mathematical it. theories. They're, they're more um, hypo- they're more like hypotheses that correct. we have yet to prove. Um, so. It'll be interesting to see if we ever do develop anything beyond the propulsion systems that we're currently looking into. Uh, I mean, it, it would obviously be very helpful for anything involving colonization or exploration, uh, because otherwise it's going to take us a really long time Several to get from here. Several generations. Yeah. To, mm-hmm. you, you, you would have to build spacecraft capable of supporting multiple generations of people aboard that with a very limited number of supplies, because, you know, you pretty much... You you have what you take with you, you know. You, you know most we don't know of any shopping malls out there beyond right. Earth. You you have to have to grow it yourself. Yeah. Uh, yep. So anyway, that that kind of wraps up this discussion about 
uh, Star Wars and hyperspace, the Kessel Run, uh, what we're actually looking into as means of propulsion in space. It's a really interesting topic. Uh, I'm glad that we, we grabbed this one as our 501st episode. And hey, to all my Star Wars fans out there, I just have to say, live long and prosper. I hope you guys enjoyed this classic episode of Tech Stuff about hyperspace. I think that's a pretty awesome science fiction topic that I find particularly fascinating. Don't know if we're ever going to see any meaningful manifestation of that idea. Or maybe we just ultimately find out that there's no real way to achieve that particular flight of fancy. I hope otherwise, but we'll see. If you guys have any suggestions for future Tech Stuff topics, let me know. Contact me on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 